Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. verses 1 through 6. Um, I'll read the scripture, and then at the end, I'll say, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. That's my new thing. I say okay, not all right now. So. For those of you who haven't been with us for a while, uh, I had a problem, and I, I would like to think I defeated the problem through the help of God. Um, I couldn't help but say all right as soon as I stood up here, but I didn't today. So. Yeah, now it's going to be okay. Well, hey, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to Redeemer Church. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I am Michael Badger, and I'm one of the elders here, and I am looking forward to uh, diving further into the book of Hebrews together with all of you. Um, Now, one of the most remarkable things I think about Scripture is that more than any other sociological textbook more than any other philosophical worldview and even more than any other uh, psychological system could ever hope to achieve, Scripture gives us the most accurate treatment of anthropology. Anthropology. In other words, the Bible gives us the most accurate view of human beings than any other text ever written. And if you want to know about people, if you really want to truly know about them, then you need to read the Bible. It, with the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, will reveal to you more about how people function and operate more than any other source that's offered by man. And now as you are reading Scripture and you're learning about the biblical view of mankind, one of the things that you will inevitably learn about is the heart. And when it comes to humankind, there's actually nothing more important than understanding the heart. Nothing more important. Scripture says that we, that we live out of our hearts. Everything that we do, everything that we say, flows directly from the fountainhead of the heart. And not only that, but, but what is in the heart is what will come out of us when the pressures of life, when the difficulties of life begin to, to squeeze us. 
And we think we are nice and good people for the most part until something, something as small as, as someone doesn't immediately go when the, when the light is green will, will make us angry, right? Or maybe cuts us off in traffic or, or treats us poorly at work or in the grocery store. We think we're good people until, until what's in our hearts comes out in moments like that. What is in the heart is revealed when, when inconveniences... Pain and trials come into our lives. It may not seem like it on the outset, but difficulties in life are actually often a a mercy to us. Do you realize that? The difficulties in our lives are, are often a mercy to us because God uses those things to help you and I recognize the sin that is still nesting in our hearts and how we need Him to sanctify us in those areas. But something else that you might also notice as you're learning about the heart in Scripture are the many ways in which the heart is described. It is, for instance, described as the seat of our emotions. Sometimes it's called the the inner man, who we are inside, the the feelings and and the emotions that boil around inside of us. But our hearts are also described as having a will or having desires. Do not believe you will be too surprised, really, at, at these two things, right? When we, when we think of our emotions, we, we kind of naturally think of our hearts. And even when we think of our desires, heart language is, is also often used. So it's not that surprising. Like, for instance, the heart wants what it wants, right? You, you kind of, you've heard that phrase before, the heart wants what it wants. The heart has desires. That, that sort of language isn't really all that uncommon to us. But what you might be somewhat, or what might be somewhat surprised to see, is that if you look at passages such as Deuteronomy 15, or, or Matthew 9:4, or Psalm 139:23, the heart is also said to have thoughts. It's said to have thoughts. And here's where we come to an important truth when it comes to how Scripture views the heart in relation to the mind. You see, we often try to separate the two. And we like to think that the heart is is for emotions and and feelings, while the mind is for for more things like like thinking and analyzing and and choosing. They're they're separate. They have different roles. But Scripture actually draws no such hard lines at all. The Bible views them as inextricably, I don't know why I put that in the sermon, inextricably, is that right? Inextricably linked? You know what I'm talking about. Unseparatable. That's what I'm trying to say. And even even synonyms. And if you take a moment to think about it, it really should not be really shouldn't really surprise you or interest that, that something is to actually touch our emotions, something to actually touch our minds, right? We must hear or see something, understand it, or or even misunderstand it before our can even relate to it. Not only that, but there is really no other better measure of the spiritual status of our hearts than our minds. Because the treasures of our hearts are revealed to us in our thoughts. Church, we we present control. We present control in our hearts. Making plans, lists, and worrying about tomorrow don't dominate 
you treasure leisure. The, the next moment you can give away to enjoy your favorite pastime is what you spend or what you will spend your time thinking about. Is your heart treasuring your, your family or, or sports or lust or, or whatever else? And what you daydream about, what you think of in the shower while driving when you, or when you lay down at night will reflect those things. Battery died? Oh, no. Am I going to have to use one of these things? Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. I, can't, I talk with my hands, so if I have to like grab a microphone, I don't know what I'll do. My brain will just fry. But this is why, as we open up chapter 3 in the book of Hebrews, the preacher who delivered the message of Hebrews calls Christians who are facing intense temptations to engage their minds. He is calling them to engage their minds. That is to, to set their thoughts on Jesus. Because as we will soon see, pondering Christ, meditating on his person and on his offices, his, his roles and what he has done is one of the primary ways that he helps us in our times of need. Now, I do want to throw out a disclaimer before we really get, uh, get far into this sermon. Because this morning, as you saw, uh, we, we read all the way to, uh, to six. Um, <laughs> but uh, when I actually sat down, or we read all the way to verse six, but when I, when I sat down to write this sermon this week, man, I had every intention of actually preaching all the way to verse six. That was, that was the plan on Monday morning. I was going to sit down and we were going to start studying and write a sermon all the way to verse six. But unfortunately, what ended up happening is that I didn't make it past verse 1. So, if you were expecting to make it all the way to verse 6 this morning, I'm, I'm sorry to inform you that's, that's not going to happen. And Lacey, I'm sorry that you had to read all the way to verse 6. So, I, I appreciate your help with that. But before we go any further, let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, I am so thankful, Lord, that we can be here together. Lord, that, that in your sovereignty... God, in your, in your wonderful providence, you have brought all of us brothers and sisters in Christ together so that we can praise your name. Lord, so that we can dive into your word and see the truth that you have for us to learn. And so, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, helps us remove all of our, our preconceived notions out of the way so that we can just take in things that, that you want us to, to take away with us this morning. Lord, we need you. We love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, <clears throat> open them up to Hebrews chapter 3, if you haven't done that already. And Hebrews chapter 3 opens up with the preacher reminding us of, of who we are, if you are in Christ. Chapter 3 opens up with the preacher reminding us of who we are. I want you to take a look at the first half of verse 1, the first half of verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Now, one of the things that I am particularly thankful for in Scripture is when it repeats truths again and again. And the reason why I'm happy about that <clears throat> is that it's because I'm a type of person. I'm a type of person, like probably every other single person who's 
uh, ever lived who, who needs a constant reminder of who I am in Christ. I need a constant reminder of that, always. And we have a culture in which we live right now that attempts to tell us that our primary identity is found in, in, in all sorts of things. It can be found in your gender. It can be found in your sexual preferences. It can be found in, in your job or your role in, in a community. And friends, this is, this is even a challenge for pastors. You know, I can often find my ultimate identity in being a pastor. And that's, that's oddly enough, a problem. But not only that, but we often think, even without the help of the culture, that who we are ultimately is the culmination of all of our past experiences. That who we are is simply the product of, of the way that we were raised and the choices that we made along the way. Now, there is absolutely some, some truth to that, right? I, I am a pastor, right? I am a, a part of this, of this community, and your personality, the way that you think, and many other things come from those past experiences and choices. Of, of course, that's true. And many Christians, maybe even many of you, believe that, that one of those things, or maybe the sum total of, of all of those things, is where you find your true identity. But here's why I'm so thankful that certain truths get repeated to us over and over again as we explore the depths of Scripture. Because, friends, what happens if something happens to me tomorrow and I can no longer be a pastor of Redeemer Church? Where's my identity then? You know, what happens if, if the thing that I, I value the most in, in, in my life, even, even my family, what if my family is taken away and I can no longer be a father or a husband tomorrow? Where's my identity then? This is, friends, this is why I am so thankful that Scripture reminds me again and again that my identity is not, it's not found in those things because those things can change at a moment's notice. My feet can be swept up from underneath me at, at any given second. And then who I think I am, if that's where I find my identity, can be utterly destroyed. I am so thankful that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, that we talked about last week, it tells me of my truest identity. I, I am called a brother by King Jesus himself. Isn't that amazing? I am called a brother by Christ. And he himself works through the Holy Spirit to sanctify me, to continually purify me, to make me holy, to make me look like him. And by the grace of God, that is who I am. That is who I am. That is the only sure and steady anchor that I have when it comes to my identity in this life. And by the grace of God, Scripture seeks to remind me of that truth again and again, because it knows, God knows of my propensity to slip and attempt to put my identity elsewhere. He knows I'll try it. He knows I'll try to do that often. And so as we read the first verse of chapter 3, it is as if the, the preacher is wanting to remind these Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ 2,000 years ago and to remind us now 
To remind everyone who's in this room, here and now, if you're a believer in Christ, that, that listen, do not forget that you are a holy brother. You are a holy sister in Christ. That is the most fundamental aspect of who you are, above every single thing else. That is who you are. And that can never change. If you've placed your faith in Christ, if you've repented of your sin, that identity can never be taken away from you. And friends, have you ever, have you ever noticed that I, that I call many of you brother or, or, or even sister all the time? I do it all the time. And if you haven't noticed me doing it, then, then maybe I need to do it more frequently. But the reason why I do that is because, friends, I, I love to call you who you actually are. Now, friends, you are, you are my brother. You are my sister in Christ. That's you. And so when I call you brother, when I call you sister, I want you to remember I'm calling you that. Not just because it's a slang, not just because it's fun to say, but because that's who you are. That is who you are. Now, Jesus is our elder brother. Now, not only does Hebrews 3.1 call us brothers, but the preacher here calls us holy brothers. Calls us holy brothers. Now the word holy just simply means set apart. And there's a, a sense in which you are, you are right now being made holy through that process of sanctification that we've talked about before. That uh, through that process of becoming more and more Christ-like throughout your entire life. Right? But then there is a, another sense in which you are holy now, if you're a believer, you have been set apart from the world as God's beloved children, right? So in that sense, you've been made holy. And when God the Father looks upon you, as we've mentioned many times in the past, he does not see all of the unholiness of your past self, of your past thoughts, or, or even your current failings. But as he casts his loving gaze on you, he sees the holiness of Christ that was given to you upon your new birth, upon your conversion, upon placing your faith in Christ Jesus. And so you are being made holy, but you are also holy now. This is sort of already not yet that we've talked about before. And so the preacher of Hebrews is putting this right back into the forefront of your minds that, so that you and everyone else who is part of God's church are all holy brothers and, and that you don't forget that. He's wanting to remind you of that fact. Now a question that actually came to my mind on, on Wednesday during our community group which was all about how we are called to, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, is that do you hold your brothers and sisters in Christ in this sort of esteem? Right? When, you, when you look at the people around you in this room, do you, do you see them as your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you recognize them as that? As, that, as not just your, or your friends, as not just those, those faces that you see on, on Sunday morning, but do you see them and treat them and love them as your holy brothers and sisters in Christ? Is that how you treat them? Is that how you think of them? Is that how you talk of them when they're not around? Friends, we should seek and pray to see one another with the same eyes that Jesus sees us. 
1 John 2.10 says it perfectly. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. And so we are holy brothers and sisters. But then he goes on and calls us, you who share in a heavenly calling. You who share in a heavenly calling. And this actually kind of goes along with our identity as, as holy brothers in Christ. We are those who share in this calling. We're a family that shares in a heavenly calling. Now this is actually to be understood as you and I sharing a, in a call from and to heaven. That's how we should see this verse. It is a call from heaven and it is a call to heaven. First, we share the call that was made to us from heaven, from the voice of our master, our, our shepherd. To help us understand this, take a look at John 10. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 16. I think we have the slide for that. Let me read it for us. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not part of this fold. And this is speaking to uh, speaking of Gentiles, the non-Jews who are being grafted into God's family through faith in Jesus. And he says, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And this is he, those who belong to God, who belong to the good shepherd, will not only just hear the voice of the shepherd, right? It's one thing to just hear a voice, but not, not listen to it, not follow it. But he, that's not what he says here. It says that they will not only hear the voice of the shepherd, but they will listen to it. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Then again, verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Friends, this is the call from heaven in which we share. It is the call of Jesus beckoning us to come and follow him. And by the gift of faith which we are given, we listened to that call. And so we share in this calling from heaven. So we share in this calling. That is from heaven, from the Savior. But this call from heaven is, remember, also a call to heaven. Or as one theologian put it, it is a call to home. It's a call home. I'm sure many of you are aware of the atrocities that happened last weekend in, in Israel. The terror organization Hamas breaking into Israel and not targeting military outposts, not, not going after a strategic military targets, but rather targeting civilian men, women, and children, committing horrific acts of barbarism, putting on full display the depths of depravity and sinfulness that lies within fallen humanity, same sinfulness that, that dwelled inside of us as well. And it's in moments like this when we see unrestrained evil that I praise God 
that this fallen and broken world that we live in right now is not where I call my ultimate home. And we are like those in 1 Chronicles 29, 15, when they said, For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on, on earth are like a shadow. Praise God for that. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. So brothers and sisters, we, we are strangers. We are, we are pilgrims on this earth. And praise God for that, by the way. And we spend so much of our time, like we, like we talked about last week, we spend so much of our time fearing death and doing everything that we possibly can to avoid it. But friends, praise God that this is not our ultimate home. Our home, if you are a believer in Christ, is not here, but it is in paradise with our King. And praise Him for that. And friends, there is coming a great and a terrible day in which the world that we live in will be rolled up like a scroll. And it will be a, a great day for those who are found in Christ because this world will be made new. It will be made into our final home and our place of, of rest. It will be a place of goodness and peace as we glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But friends, it will be a terrible day for all those who are not found in Christ. Because on that day, all the evils that have occurred ever since the fall of man, including what occurred last weekend, will be avenged by Jesus as he brings his true justice fully and completely to bear on earth. But friends, until that time comes, we are to pray for our enemies. And friends, we are to love our enemies. We've got to remember that Hamas, everything that happened over there, those are our enemies. Those are the same people that scripture calls us to love. And so until that day comes, until we are taken from this earth, until Christ comes back, we are to pray for our enemies, we are to love our enemies, we are to preach the gospel to them, and pray that even they, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are broken by their sin, and cry out to Christ Jesus as their Savior. And until Christ comes, or the day of our death, friends, we are to long, we are to long for our true home where the beauty and love of God will surround us and envelop us forever. Right? And so we share in this calling from heaven to heaven. What a beautiful calling that is. So the preacher reminds us of who we are. We are holy brothers who share in a call. But I do need to back up <clears throat> for just a second, to the very first word in this verse. The word, therefore. Can't forget that word. You see, chapter 3 was not written in a vacuum, but it is building on the realities presented to us in, in chapter 1 and, and especially in chapter 2. With that single word, therefore, the preacher is wanting us to hold in our minds everything that we learned that came previous and bring it with us into chapter 3. He wants us to hold in our minds, for instance, that Jesus is higher than the angels, right? He wants us to hold in our minds that Jesus is our elder brother. That through the cross, he gave death, uh, the, or sorry, he gave the death blow to the devil. 
robbing him of using death as a weapon against us. He wants us to hold in our minds that through the cross, Jesus liberated us from even having to fear death because we know that death is is now just a, a doorway into glorious life. He wants us to hold those things in our minds. And he wants us to hold on to that through the the suffering that Jesus experienced during his time on earth. He was made into our perfect and sympathetic high priest. The one who we run to in our own sufferings and temptations for help. He wants us to hold on to that as we go into chapter 3. He says, therefore... Because all these things that I have said so far are true. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And that word consider doesn't mean just kind of think of him as as an option. You know, all those things are true, so just, you know, consider Jesus. You know, that kind of thing. But consider Jesus just means think. Think about Jesus. Ponder Jesus. Set your mind on Jesus. Boil down what the preacher is saying. Therefore, Christian, focus your mind on Jesus. Now, I mentioned at the introduction to this sermon that a good indicator of what our hearts treasure, what they value the most, is revealed by what consumes the bulk of our thought life. And so a question I have for you is, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, What do I spend most of my time thinking about? It's a dangerous question. And the reason why I ask this question is because I think, without us really meaning to, friends, we can become lazy in our thinking. We can be lazy in our minds. And I believe the reason why we can become lazy in our thinking is sort of what I mentioned before, that we think that there's this separation between the mind and the heart. That maybe without actually verbalizing this, in the back of our minds, we think that it doesn't really matter what I choose to think about, what I, what I choose to focus my thoughts on or meditate on, because ultimately, my, my heart is fine, right? My, my heart's good. I know my relationship with Jesus is good, and therefore, I don't really need to think about him all that, all that deeply or, or even all that often. But friends, one of the things which I've become convinced of over the years is that we often succumb to fear. We often succumb to to temptation. We often succumb to sin because we do not recognize that the command that God is giving us here in Hebrews 3 is an essential spiritual discipline for every single Christian. Have you ever heard of the saying, idle hands are the devil's playthings or something along those lines? Well, I believe it is more true that an idle mind, one that does not purposefully and with intentionality seek to set itself on the things above, is used even more by the enemy than idle hands to ensnare us into sin. For example, how much easier is it for the enemy to entice us into sin, to fall to temptation, if we never practice the spiritual discipline of considering Jesus, of setting our minds to pondering his greatness, his glory, and everything that he accomplished on our behalf? How easy would it be, as Paul preached on, Pastor Paul, not Apostle Paul, Pastor Paul, preached on a few weeks ago, for us to drift away from our relationship with God if our minds are found idle? 
if they're found to be lazy in our thinking about Jesus. And so friends, again, I say, this is a spiritual discipline, and it is one of the utmost importance. By the grace of God, through our conversion, also called new birth within Scripture, did you know that even our minds were liberated from the effects of sin? Did you know that? You see, Romans 1 tells us that because of the fall of mankind, all of us, every single one of us, became depraved in our thinking. A, a dark fog created by sin clouded our mind and made us incapable of thinking truly godly thoughts, made us incapable of pleasing God with our thought life. Even the most noble and heroic thoughts were, were tainted and distorted by some sort of sin. And you can, you can think that would be impossible when you think of you know, the, the heroes from the ages. You think of the bravery that was showed in World War II or World War I by people who were not believers. But friends, if, if those heroic deeds were not done for the glory of Christ, as heroic and as, as wonderful as they are, they weren't done to glorify God. And therefore, they were tainted by sin. Same thing with the thoughts. Same thing with the thought life. But when we were made into new creations through faith in Christ, that fog finally lifted. And we could finally lift the eyes of our minds to heaven. To have our thoughts be captivated and consumed by the person of Jesus. And this is what scripture calls the renewal of our minds. The renewal of our minds. Our minds being made new. And friends, this is, this is actually wonderful. Because this means that we can ponder what it means that Christ is our elder brother. We can, we can plumb the depths of what it means that Jesus made an appeasement for our sins. That we no longer have the wrath of God focusing in on us. That we can, we can daydream what it's going to be like on that day that we receive our full inheritance. And now we can meditate on the wonderful truth that the fear of death now just has to be, it's just a memory. Not something that holds us in captivity any longer. We can think on those things. We now have been made free to think about these beautiful things. And to be transformed. Transformed by those thoughts through the working of the Holy Spirit. But again, friends, this considering Jesus is a spiritual discipline. Discipline. Romans 12, verse 2, tells us to not be conformed, to not be molded into the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Now, in this verse, you will notice that the Apostle Paul, not Pastor Paul, not Preacher Paul, but the Apostle Paul, does not say that you are passively being transformed by the renewal of your mind. It doesn't say you're being transformed by the renewal of your mind without any effort or discipline on your behalf. In fact, you can just kind of sit back and, and relax and let the Holy Spirit do its work in this particular instance. That's not what this passage says at all. This passage is giving a command. It's giving you a command. It is telling you to be transformed. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Not you are being transformed. Be transformed. It is something that through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you are to put effort into. 
And this is found all throughout Scripture. Take Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2 as the perfect example of this. And I think we have that on the screen. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek, seek, purposely look for, go after, set your eyes upon the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Friends, this passage is telling us that the thought life of a Christian is not something that is to be passive. There are so many things in this world that are going to fight to take up space in your mind. Lust, control, material gain, sports, local drama, politics, and so on and so forth. The list is endless. There's no shortage of things on earth, even things that appear good and harmless on the surface, that will compete for the attention of your mind. And the enemy will continue to put these things in front of you and use these things to entice your thought life because the devil knows that where your thoughts go, so too will the rest of your heart. So too will go your emotions and desires. And this is why Paul tells us that we are to be transformed. We are to be transformed by the renewal of our, of, of, of our hearts, by the renewal of our minds. Because the more we, with intentionality, think about Jesus, the more we think about his splendid radiance and everything that we learned about him in Hebrews 1 and 2, the more we will begin to see the whole of our hearts, the whole of our hearts, not just pieces of our hearts, not just, not just certain functions of our hearts, but the entirety of our hearts, our emotions, our desires, our passions, our, our will, our, the thoughts of our hearts. We'll see those things being transformed. Once our thoughts were consumed by, by gaining better and better material possessions and wealth. And that led to insecurities about what we have now. Maybe it led to a lack of being satisfied with what the Lord has given you now. Maybe it led to bitterness because those people over there have what I wanted and don't I deserve those things, God? But when we replace those thoughts with the beauty of Jesus... We learn what it means to be content because we are in possession of the greatest treasure on heaven and on earth, Jesus Christ. Maybe once our thoughts were consumed by trying to control every aspect of our lives and maybe even the lives of those around us, which led to fear because we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And if we don't plan perfectly today, then, then who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Maybe we were consumed by thoughts of control, which, which led to a distrust in the sovereignty of God. A lack of being able to trust that His plan and His care is greater for us than even our own for ourselves and for our families and for our friends. And we could just, we could never simply rest. But when we set our minds to replace those thoughts with the truth that we have a good and sovereign God, who scripture says has written the beginning to the end, who has lovingly planned every day of our lives, who works all things, good and bad alike, all things, for our good and for his glory. When we with conviction set our minds on those things, even when we don't want to, even when it is difficult, 
Friends, our fear of tomorrow and our distrust in God is replaced with peace. It's replaced with peace and joyful trust. I, of course, could go on with example after example of how setting yourself with diligence, discipline, and intentionality to pondering or considering Jesus is used to transform you from the inside out. But suffice it to say, you, believer, are not called to be passive in your faith. D.L. Moody once said, When we find a man meditating on the words of God, my friends, that man is full of boldness and is successful. And I don't believe that D.L. Moody was meaning that the man meditating on the words of God is successful by worldly standards. I believe what he meant by this is that you will find a man that is full of boldness because he knows the truth that we just read about in Hebrews 2. The man pondering on the words of God, he is full of boldness because there is truly nothing in this world that he knows that he has left to fear. Nothing. Not a single thing. Not man, not disease, not the devil, not even death. Nothing. And he is successful because his thoughts are reflecting the treasure of his heart. And he is successful in that he possesses a deep satisfaction and a profound contentment in Jesus. I mean, there's almost nothing in this world that I want more than that. Contentment. Contentment in Christ Jesus. Satisfaction. Happiness that, that I have him. Everything else can be taken away. And I mean everything. Even my family can be taken away. But I am content because I have Christ. So brothers and sisters, where your thoughts are found, the rest of your heart will follow. So are you being intentional in your thought life? Are you taking every thought captive and making it obedience to Christ? Making it obedient to Christ, as 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us to do. Meaning that when a thought that, that brings fear or temptation in your mind, you, you hold on to that thought. You capture that thought and ask, what does God's word say about what I'm thinking right now? Do you do that? Do you purposely ponder heavenly things? Do you seek to have your thoughts day by day be more and more taken by the person and work of Jesus? So friends, I encourage you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what takes up the bulk of your thought life and to help you make a plan. Make a plan to replace those thoughts with the Son of the living God. With your great high priest. With your elder brother. With your Savior and King Jesus. Maybe that could, that could look like writing Bible verses down on note cards and plastering them all over your home and your car. Or maybe it could be setting an alarm to remind you to think on Jesus. Maybe you set aside time after your Bible reading to just sit and think about what you read. When was the last time you've done that? When you read the Bible, do you just read it to check off a, a list? You actually ponder the things you read. You think about them. Maybe you just need to go for a walk. Leave your phone behind, or if that's too scary for you, turn it on silent. And have nothing on the agenda for that walk but, but prayer and thinking about God. Whatever it may be, friends, do not neglect this discipline. 
the Lord wants to transform you, wants to transform you. He desires to do it, and he desires to do it through the renewal of your mind. Don't hinder that work by being lazy with your mind and being satisfied with spending all of your time pondering on the lower things of earth. Think on Jesus, who is, as the rest of verse 1 says, your great apostle, meaning that he was the one who brought the message who was sent from God to earth with the revelation of your heavenly calling. Think on Jesus, who, as verse 1 says, is your great high priest, meaning your go-between, who offered the perfect sacrifice of himself so that there can be reconciliation between us and himself. Friends, there is nothing more beautiful, nothing greater, nothing deeper than thinking on Christ. Let us pray. Lord God, forgive us, Lord. We can so often be so lazy in our thinking. We can so often have our thoughts be dominated by the idols of our heart that get churned out day by day. Lord, idols of control, idols of selfishness, idols of materialism. And these idols... Lord, that, that we have in our hearts can take up our thought life, Lord. We think about them. We obsess over them. And God's, God, when the, when the pressures of life begin to build up, Lord, that's what comes out. Fear. Anxiety. A desire to, to control everything around us. Selfishness. Greed. Envy. All of these things. But Lord, you want to do in us a work of renewal. And so God, I just pray that you help us. You help us do the work, do the discipline through the power of your Holy Spirit. To think and ponder on Christ. Lord, to have him be the center of our thoughts. Lord, we love you. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.